Welcome to another episode of Englishman in New York. Uh, I've lost count of which episode it is, to be honest, Will, but how are you, mate? How was your birthday, which was yesterday? Uh, I went out for dinner with my lovely girlfriend on the Upper West Side, and um, she, oh, have it, two years ago, she did a surprise dinner for me, and I hate surprises, and so I was very grateful, but I said, never again, please, never a surprise <laughs> again, and then yesterday... She set up a Zoom call with about 15 of my mates in England and mates who didn't really know each other, some of them. And any Zoom call that is not work related with a very clear agenda, even if they're all your best mates, is horrendous. I I, I think, Nick, there is a very clear agenda there. It's your birthday. So it shouldn't really go wrong. So it was a surprise call. Um, she was supposed to tell me. I found out a little bit before. Um, she Her call overran. And so oh, they wow. had to send me the link. I then went on the Zoom and they're all sitting there. And who takes control of that situation? You so have was, to, Nicholas. Well, exactly. But there's 15 people. So in the end, uh, I it was deeply awkward. And I was yeah. quite happy it was over by the end. Yeah. So not a famous birthday. But I don't think with you, um, one of the the most miserable people I've ever met <laughs> when it comes to things when it comes to things like birthdays and parties I'm, I'm not surprised <laughs> that it wasn't a great but one. we went out for dinner we had a lovely dinner uh, at an Italian restaurant and no all good awesome um let's so, talk about our guest yeah let's talk about our guest we just finished recording and I think we all agreed it was one of the best pods yet if not the best she um we're really on the female entrepreneur founder jam recently aren't we mm-hmm. um, we are indeed so the, the guest this week um it's monique bernstein who is co-founder of a business called universal yums and essentially they sell subscription monthly subscription um confectionery boxes with confectionery from different markets around the world different country each month so you can try snacks from all over the place and they've had insane success um they're about to hire their 50th member of the team um, they did $20 million revenue last year and are expecting to double it this year. So um, a really, really impressive woman. She's got a, a fascinating story, as all of these people always do. Um, and so without further ado, we give you Englishman in New York, episode nine, Monique Bernstein. I'm serious. Move to a new city. We're moving to New York. Okay, I should probably buy a place in the city first. Are you here for business or pleasure? Welcome back to the podcast and welcome, Monique. How are you? Where are we speaking to you from? Oh, I'm doing well. Uh, You're speaking to me from Montclair, New Jersey. Um, I'm actually working from home today for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, Didn't want to get like a lot of warehouse noise or anything. So sorry for pulling you away from the (laughs) warehouse. Uh, We know from connecting with you earlier in the week that actually you've been pretty much working from the office throughout the entirety of the pandemic, right? Yep. Or most of it. So yeah, very privileged to be um, speaking to you from your home. <laughs> and sorry for dragging you away from, yeah, the the the, the millstone, the grindstone, the grindstone. Yeah. I think it's cool stuff like that, isn't it? It's funny because I think it's given me like more normalcy than most people in the pandemic because I just still like go to work every day and I've like structured my days still. So in a way, I feel lucky that I don't know. I've had that level of normalcy in my life. Yeah, definitely been a hell of a lot more efficient than I have probably for the last four months. <laughs> but there we go. Don't tell my boss. <laughs> Are you in any way um, dreading re- everything returning to normal, Monique? Are there any aspects that you've really enjoyed? Um, so I, when this all started, I think I was feeling like, oh man, a little bit of relief. Like I think when you're leading a company and you're training people and you have like these face-to-face interactions all the time, like you really have to be on like all the time. And so when it first started, I was kind of like, I never thought I would ever get this again, just me and Eli working by ourselves again. And it's given me a lot of time to like reflect on what I want to do differently when everyone's back in the office. Like, um, I think I'm just going to appreciate it a lot more. Like I've had my breather. I've had my break from like always having to be on. And when I, when everyone's back, I I feel like I'm going to be much more well set up to like be excited about that change. It's given me like an appreciation for having everyone there. A super positive take on things. I think the most positive take (laughs) I've had on anyone talking about work and COVID over the last four months. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Everyone else is like doom and gloom is like, it's made me realize I never want to go back to the office again and that work sucks. all that sort of stuff. So we love that. 
Um, but yeah, thanks so much um, for coming on and having a chat with yeah. us. I guess the way we like to do things on this podcast um, is to go back a little bit before we talk about all the things like what and where work is for you, things like what COVID has had, effect COVID has had on your life and business and, and really take it back to, I guess, the start and, and, and where you grew up, um, which is Columbus, Ohio, if I remember that correctly. Yeah, Columbus, Ohio. Have you been there before? <laughs> I'm looking at Nick. I haven't either. I have not. I've not. We have a big client there, Victoria's Secret uh-huh. Pink, and I know they're a, a behemoth of uh, Columbus, Ohio life. Well, what's but interesting been... about Columbus, Ohio is that um, a lot of brands use it as their test market. So, like, ah. it, it just is truly, like, a slice of life of Americans. It, it's hilarious to me that, like, you know, I grew up in this area where every brand and company does their test markets there because it's such a representative piece of what like will be successful throughout the nation. Um, so basically, you're trying to say that we have to go and visit there before we leave, before our time on New York, if it ever comes to a close. But that's the next holiday destination, essentially. <laughs> sure. If you really want that American <laughs> life. Yeah, I think you got to go. I, Lots of chain restaurants. Oh, I love um, a chain restaurant. I love a chain yeah. restaurant. My favorite things about yeah. America. Outbacks, Blooming Onion. <laughs> I went to Joe's Crab Shack a couple of weekends ago. It's really my... We pitched to um, we pitched to Zaxby's yesterday. Is that one of the big chain restaurants in Ohio? Actually, it's down in the south that, that that's more popular. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. more southern. God, don't tell them. We're pitching again next week. Don't tell <laughs> them. Geography, as per usual, Nick, letting us down. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Columbus, Ohio, for, for British listeners, that's west of new york it's a midwestern state um ohio right and Col- yes. columbus is i'd imagine a population of about a million or less uh i'm not sure i think it might actually be more um right yeah i'm, I'm actually not sure on that i mean like i didn't grow up like on a farm like i lived <laughs> in a suburban neighborhood um very suburban not a bad life and you ended up going to <laughs> college in columbus ohio right no, I went to school um, in Cincinnati at the University of Cincinnati. I think I'm like really abnormal because I studied marketing and international business, which are perfectly correlated to my career now. So um, really knew what I wanted to do, I guess, very early on. Yeah, definitely couldn't <laughs> say the same for mine, which was political science. And I've ended up in, in media <laughs> marketing. And mine. I did sociology. Wow. Pretty far apart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I guess in terms of like a lot of these big American cities or even states have certain companies that kind of represent the city that they were based in. So I guess, you know, an obvious one is Amazon and Seattle. Um, And I know that for you guys, P&G was one of the major organizations um, and somewhere that you ended up working at. But I guess before that, there was some work experience at other companies like Hershey's, right? Yeah. So I was uh, part of a program in college where I would go to school for a quarter and then work for a quarter. And so there was a lot of opportunities for me to work for various corporations in Cincinnati. One of them was Nielsen. So that was my first internship um, in college. But my main goal during all of college was to work at P&G. It was like the dream job. That was all I wanted out of mm. life was to work at PNG someday. <laughs> um, and and my second and third year of college, I worked for Hershey because uh, Kroger is based in Cincinnati, so they have a you know a sales team that supports the Kroger business. So half the time I was in the office and I was learning like all of the data systems, like Dunhumby uh, analyzed all the Kroger data and I was helping make recommendations on how Hershey should build their promotional strategy. But most of the time I was actually in Kroger or in Walmart or in Meyer, and I was merchandising all of the um, displays, which was really interesting to me because candy is a very impulse purchase. So I would go around stores and identify A and B and D locations. And I would try to find the A locations and try to persuade all these like store managers of I'll take down your grape jelly if I can build this like huge Hershey display in the front of the store and I loved it I thought it was so fun like I could see the impact of what I was doing I felt like I was really making a difference like if I wasn't there that 
Kit Kat package would not get restocked. <laughs> and um, for me, that was like a great experience. And uh, I think P&G really liked it because when I went up to try to get an internship in my senior year, they were like amped about my experience working for Hershey. So I was able to get that job. And then that later translated to my first job out of college working for Procter & Gamble. Was working for Hershey's where you got the sweet tooth from? So obviously we'll talk about Universal Yums in a, in a bit, but is that where <laughs> the love of candy and all things confectionery came from? Um, I, I, I read my baby book recently and apparently like that I would like try to eat cake for breakfast. So I think it's been <laughs> like really innate to who I am, but definitely like working for Hershey. I, I loved working for like these major brands that, you know, Reese's and Kit Kat that just like made people feel good. I thought that was just, you know, candy has a place in people's lives. And, you know, when you're need a little pick me up or you're celebrating a holiday. I just thought it was so fun to like give people that like really instantaneous bit of happiness in their lives. I don't need convincing. I have like a terribly (laughs) bad sweet tooth, remarkably never had a filling, but my cupboards, which I I could show you, maybe I'll show you once we've finished recording this is just like full to the brim and coming to America, having never really been over here before I arrived. My first thought was I need to go to a supermarket um, and I yeah. need to go to the candy aisle and I'm going to stock up on a shitload of candy. And there's so many brands I've never seen before. And I was literally like the the epitome of a kid in the candy store. But and what's your, uh, my opinion, which I'd be interested in your opinion as well, Monique, is American chocolate is nowhere near disgusting. as good as British chocolate. Like Cadbury's, which obviously is Mondelez owned. It doesn't even taste the same. Way, but no, and it's sweeter in America than Britain as well because it's manufactured here. But... Yeah, you're proving what's your my opinion, whole Monique? point of why my company exists. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. And now, having tried chocolate from many other places, not just in Britain, um, it, it's been confirmed. I do think America has the worst chocolate, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it does. It definitely does like gummies Gummy. and like proper candy, as in not chocolate, extremely well, and sour candy, extremely well. The sour trolley worms. There's an endorsement for. Um, yeah, we should be <laughs> recouping some money money from. Um, they are excellent. Um, but anyway, less of candy for now. Um, the degree that you did at college sounds like pretty much the best possible degree you could do, um, judging by what employers are after. Or I certainly found after leaving university, which was like hard work experience plus like theoretical mm-hmm. grounding. Um, I'm super jealous that you kind of stumbled upon that because, yeah, if Nick and I are doing humanities like sociology and politics the least applicable thing you could possibly have done to go into the business world. So yeah, you definitely stumbled upon a good one. I'm super jealous that you had that experience of being able to go and work at all these amazing places to get a taste of what the outside world would be like and what it'd be like going and working at, you know, in big business and big corporates. Where did did you go anywhere internationally whilst you were doing that? Or was it all domestic stuff? Yeah, so I did my international business degree um, in China. So I was there for four months, my senior year of school. And as much as my internships were instructive and informative to what I wanted to like do in my career, going to China was probably the other piece of it. Um, I I really felt like the way that I most got to understand like their culture was through food. Like even just the way that they eat, everything is communal. Like you order a bunch of dishes and then there's the lazy Susan. And I just thought it was so cool that there was this element of like sharing when I was actually there in China. And then like when I came home, I obviously wanted to tell people like all about China and what it was like living there and how different it was from the United States and how much I felt I had grown as a person from being there. But like no one really wanted to listen to that. So instead, I would be like, here, try some durian candy. It's it's really interesting. And that would kind of be like the opener for people to be like, you ate this. This is what people eat there. And like, I just thought food could be such a cool like opener to exploring and understanding other cultures um so china was like i don't know the seed of if people could try things from that country they might like have a deeper appreciation or at least recognition of that country Um, i think that started like very soon after i came home interesting maybe um the, the the way to solve like the latent nationalism in america at the moment and the issues they have with 
huge right wingers over here just to give them candy from around the world. Don't think it hasn't crossed my mind. <laughs> Maybe it's the political solution is like some weird political candy campaign. But There's a thought. I think when you travel abroad and you have an experience, especially at a young age, um, it's so formative to like getting rid of all feelings of mm. nationalism. You really understand that like we're we're all humans and that's kind of the, the main thing that I've tried to dedicate my life towards and educating people on that concept. Although it's very country specific, I think overall someone who has an experience with universal yums, I would want them to take that away. I guess the question that um, everyone is asking who's listening is, did you get that dream job at PNG when you left college? Of course, yeah. I, I set Smashed myself <laughs> up for success and I, I was so happy the day that I got that job. I, I thought I would never be happier than that moment in my life. Because um, I worked for it for five years. It was like my singular goal in college was to get this job out of out of school. And was it as good as you expected? <laughs> I'm sensing that potentially it might not have been everything well, that you thought it was. Obviously, be. I'm not still working there. Um, no, it was it was um, it was like a crash. Like I I distinctly remember like the month of my first like week my first month of work I was like coming home and like calling up like my grandparents and my dad and being like why didn't you tell me like that this is what it was gonna be (laughs) like that I was gonna put all this like effort and work and get to my goal and then I would like sit in a cubicle and go to meetings and I mean it was just dull it was it was dull it was not the exciting you know infused of bring your new ideas to the table and PNG is going to run with them. It was, you're a cog in the machine. This is your tiny piece that you have. And I think it was even worse for me because when I joined, there was, they gave me a new role in the organization. And I, I knew within the first month of being there that the role didn't need to exist. And I spent the rest of my time there proving to management why they should not have someone in the role, which I thought was like the most value I could offer was to explain that to them. So never put someone else in that this position yeah, ever, ever again and sub- subject them to the torment of it. What was the um, what was the role in which, which kind of department, which part of PNG? Obviously, it's a huge um, CPG conglomerate, but where whereabouts were you based it within the business? Um, so I was working on their email programs. They have a couple different um, lifestyle websites and then they uh, use um, those lifestyle websites to build email lists and then to sell um, more PNG products from those emails. I was in charge of like market research for the emails, but there wasn't a lot of like market research to do. I mean, it was really hard to measure the impact of the emails in the first place because, you know, PNG sells in a million different channels. So it was like impossible to actually measure the results. And then, you know, it was just like so much agency work that was being done that like, even if I came in and said something, the agency would say something different. And I felt like Mm -hmm. um, really my hands were tied to make any sort of impact so it was definitely like a frustrating experience. I finally got like a bunch of money from management to go run a study to see if the emails worked. And my conclusion was like, why even pay for the study when we could just shut the, all the programs down and then like do like a test versus control of like, we're just not going to run the program for like two years and see if there's any measurable impact on sales. I just hated the programs. Like I, I, I almost couldn't even do my job because I thought like the hypothesis PNG had of creating like this lifestyle website and then sending the emails. I just thought it was like a flawed premise. What I'm really enjoying about this is it really vindicates my uh, lack of trying to get a grad scheme job out of university into like a multinational corporate that all my friends spent hours, if not like days and weeks and months, like filling in those 5,000 words, um, question answers to go for like a really badly paid job to sit in a cubicle. So I'm, I'm really glad I didn't do that. But from your perspective, I guess there was one good thing that came out of going working at PNG, which was that you met your husband. Yep, yep, right? I did. Probably, it sounds like from what you've just said, which sounds like it was an awful time, that was probably the best aspect of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it was interesting for me because um, I got a lot of opportunities at PNG. I was lucky to have, man- particularly my manager's manager, 
really believed in me and gave me a lot of exposure to senior leadership. I presented in front of the CEO when I was, you know, which was like unheard of for my level. I was really given a lot of autonomy to like make my mark since I probably spent like 25% of my time actually doing my job. I spent the other 75% like hopping through projects and making my voice known of what I thought PNG should be doing in the digital space. And those were advantages, but certainly like I, I knew that it wasn't going to be right for me. And when I met Eli, my husband, it was, um, it was really like, finally I met my companion. Like he also felt similarly to how I did about PNG. We knew it was going to be right for them, for either of us. And I just felt like I was miss. I, I, I didn't have like a peer that felt that way. And it was just like finding someone who understood how I was feeling and understood me and also saw, I think, you know, the potential of what I could do outside of PNG, which I didn't feel there, you know, at PNG, they want you to stay at PNG. So no one was really encouraging me to think beyond the, those walls. And Eli was kind of the first person that said, yeah, this is, you got to go. You got to get out of here. And you didn't work closely with him at all, right? You met at a drunken work party. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> As many do. Um, not was what, what was it? Was it like the sort of inaugural holiday party or was it something different? There was like a young professionals organization that PNG sponsored. And so I, I don't know if I got tickets through work or how I got the tickets, but um, we both were there and it was for Mardi Gras in March. And um, yeah, I, I, it was just unexpected. And the, the thing was, like, I was such a big proponent of meeting people online because I just thought it was like this amazing resource. You could like vet the candidates that would be appropriate for you to date um, and spend your time efficiently. <laughs> and then I met him in person. So I, I couldn't even tell that story of like leveraging the online tools that we had available. Oh, I bet there's a good conversion rate. Right. Like, I bet there's a lot yeah. of marriages and children that have come out of that. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent, for sure. And um, w- when was it that you guys finally decided that, right, we need to get out of this situation, let's get out of PNG and let's side hustle something and see if we can get it off the ground? Like, what stage was that in terms of the, the time that you're at PNG? So it wasn't like one day we just came to that decision. It started with... I. I was so miserable at work that like every day I would force myself to write lists of like ideas. So one idea would be like how I can be happier at work. The other idea would be like 10 things I can learn from my manager. Um, And then I wrote this idea list one day that was like 10 businesses I could start in a day because I was very like getting lost in my own ideas of, oh, I need to be tech oriented or I need to have a tech founder or I need to raise money. So I was just like, okay, 10 things I can do in a day. And I wrote down this list and then I shared it with Eli over dinner of like, you want to read this list that I came up with? And he said, sure. And then, um, (laughs) no, not really. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Probably. (laughs) I had like this idea on the list to do a subscription box where you would basically like taste test different foods and then input like what your favorite was. And then it would calibrate like what you felt versus what like the general population felt. And it was also like supposed to take comparable brands like a Nabisco Oreo, a Walmart Oreo, a Kroger brand Oreo and tell you like which one you should actually buy. Like was the brand name worth it or should you just buy the store brand? Interesting. So Eli thought it was interesting too. Mm -hmm. And he was like, that's cool. I'll work on it with you. And so we started working on that idea first. And within two weeks, we knew that it was never going to work. Like there were a lot of like food regulatory things that you couldn't like mislabel and misbrand and cover up the brands of. And it was going to be more of like a data service and we wanted to be in the B2C space. So then we like set out to like take a concerted market research approach to what subscription box we should develop because we knew we wanted to be in the subscription box space. It was like the easiest business to bootstrap because you could... Um, you know, start without any sort of like rent or overhead. You could order the initial inventory. If you needed to, you could cap out like the number of boxes available. And then you you could pretty much understand churn on a relatively, um, you know, quick quick basis. And then you would, you know, uh, be able to reorder uh, for subsequent months based on that churn data. So we felt like it was the easiest business for us to bootstrap. Um, And then we went, really in depth on what 
uh, subscription box we should develop. And I was, I was pretty certain I wanted to do the Universal Yams concept of snacks and candies from a different country every month right away. But Eli was like, made me go through like a month long process of vetting the idea. (laughs) And just, I think we were, he felt like if we're really going to do this, we need to be serious about it. We need Mm -hmm. to like, I mean, he's an engineer by training. So it was like, we're going to follow a process. And I I learned uh, that was like the first thing I probably learned from him was how to like follow a process to actually make sure the idea would be viable. Cool. I'm, can you remember what the, I, I think it's I, really fascinating. I'm always like super excited to speak to founders who literally just like bootstrap something completely from scratch. Can you remember the first box and where the, because the, the concept which you mentioned is it's candies from all around the world and you visit a different uh, country or geographical location each month and there's a selection of sweet and savory. I'm doing your pitch for you pretty much. Yeah, yeah. great. Um, <laughs> selection of sweet and savory candy in that box. This shows how much I love candy as well and <laughs> snacks and snacking. Um, in, in yeah, in, in one box delivered to your door. Do you remember what the first, the very first like test inventory was was on and where it was from? How could I forget? This is yeah. like my first <laughs> child. <laughs> um, yeah, it was from Germany uh, and we had like all of these strategic reasons why we picked Germany. I was gonna say, was it data driven? Yeah. Well, we were. Well, there were already like Japanese snack boxes out in the market, so we didn't want to do Japan. We thought Germany had like a good perception with Americans, um, and also my grandparents were originally from Germany, and I wanted to honor Ooh. them, and they helped me with translations and. Um, oh, nice! It, it was kind of like an homage to where I came from. A proper proper family affair in that yeah. respect. Yeah. Cool. And what was the the initial sample size in terms of like interest, uh, inventory and boxes? How many, like, where did you set the bar at? Was it like a hundred, a thousand? So we set a goal. We launched in October. We set a goal to ship out a hundred by December. And we had, we were doing all this stuff to try to get the word out. Like we were sending it to different like YouTubers. We were sending it to different like subscription box review sites. But the best thing that we did was post on the subreddit, shut up and take my money. And we got um, way more than 100 orders off of that, like, post on Reddit. And so we increased the goal to 400, which we met. So we shipped 400 boxes our first month. Awesome. And that subreddit, I'm imagining, is completely organic. You basically just stumbled upon this subreddit and was like, oh, makes sense to post it in there. Yep, exactly. Yep. (sighs) Smart. Smart ideas, Nick. What were the what were the markets that were? But how did you go about choosing the first few countries and markets to take inspiration and snacks from? And like, what, what over the history have been the most successful markets? I wish I I had like a great answer for this, but it was really need based. So we would go. There was a giant uh, grocery store in Cincinnati called Jungle Gyms, and they specialize in offering all these products from around the world. If you ever go to Cincinnati, you should go here. It is a it's like the size of a football field. It's crazy. Um, So we would go there, and what's required of all food importers is you have to put on the back of the package your name and contact information. So we would just go into the aisle and it'd be like the British aisle and we'd look at every package and take photos of it. And then we would call up the importer and say, hey, can we order from you? And so like our first initial boxes were just based on what importers said yes and who was the easiest to work with. And that's how we got our initial products. Um, Over time, obviously, that strategy has evolved a lot because now we are the importer. Um, That was a big reason why we moved from Ohio to New Jersey to become an importer. Um, And obviously now we order full containers and multiple containers from those suppliers. But um, over time, I think the most successful boxes that we've had are kind of unsurprising. Um, Italy always does really, really well for us. People, I think, have a big attraction to Italian food, obviously. Americans Um, are obsessed. My anecdotal is like obsessed with everything Italian and going to Italy. So that would make sense to me completely. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I think actually we're doing our Thailand box right now. And from doing it previously, we've seen a lot of um, positive churn numbers when we do Italy. So uh, people seem to really like the or not Italy, uh, Thailand when we do Thailand. 
And and how long was it from? So you did that classic thing where you bootstrapping from your house, and I'd imagine like candy coming out your ears, like boxes <laughs> up to the ceiling, like trips down to the USPS um, every afternoon, or you're obviously fitting in around work, so that must have been really complicated. Mm-hmm. How long did it take to go from box uh, month one, four hundred orders, German stuff, to to actually relocating, being like, there's not enough room in our house anymore. We can't do this. Um, so. We started the company in October. We left our jobs at PNG in March. So there was about a six month period where we were, the company had launched and we were working. And when we uh, stepped away from PNG in March, we got our small little office space in Cincinnati. So that was when we moved it outside of the home and there was like a loading dock and, you know, receptionist that serviced the whole building so they could receive or, um, you know, any incoming deliveries. So that was really helpful. And then, after about, I don't know, probably six months of doing it full time, we we went to this trade show in New York. It's called the Fancy Food Show. And there was a class you could pay $100 to take to like, uh, it was really for like food manufacturers overseas to learn how to sell into the US, but we took it. And there was this chart they showed, which was like, you sell your product to an importer and then they mark it up 200% and then they sell it to a retailer. And like looking at this chart, Eli and I were just like outraged. We were like, we're, we're paying this $200, 200% markup. Like F that we're going to go be an importer. And so then we started having the conversation about moving to New Jersey and building out our importing business. Um, so we, when we first got to New Jersey, we got like a relatively small warehouse space, about 3,000 3, square feet. Um, so that was our next move from the office in Cincinnati. How was it um, just going back to when you were PNG and trying to balance working in the evenings and also having a full day of work and also doing it with your significant other to, to pry a little bit? Was there, was it, you know, terse and tense? Well, we moved in together really early on, too, because we were, like, trying to save money. So he moved into my apartment, which was, like, this two-room apartment. It was not a lot of space. I don't know. I mean, fortunately, almost – it was almost fortunate we had the business because we were, like, determined to make it work. And so when we fought and when, you know – I mean, moving in together, you find out how the other person really is – I I just think we, like, kind of knew we were going to make it work. So, like, every fight or, like, argument was kind of, like, couched with, like, okay, well, what did we learn from this to do differently next time? Because we're, like, stuck. Like, we are stuck together. So I think it kind of, like, I don't know. It just allowed us to, like, build our relationship in a very constructive way of, like, we're going to make it work rather than, like, oh, we disagree and we fight and that's going to bring us apart because if – if that would have been our attitude, we fought so much, we would have definitely like not succeeded. <laughs> I mean, you're you're still together and you're married now, so it must have worked, didn't it? Yeah. Really, I guess. Like in my head, I'm just thinking about and um, apologies because Kelsey, my girlfriend, does definitely listen to this, but I just don't. This is just FYI, Kelsey. If you're listening, I don't think we could do the same thing and run a business together. <laughs> I just I can't even imagine. I wouldn't have any hair left. It would be... Whereas I can say anything because my girlfriend almost certainly doesn't listen. She thinks listening to me being in the room is enough to know what's going on on the podcast. So, We should get them on one day. Yeah, you should. As guests. As wow. guests. That's wow. a great idea. I, I think like they that might idea. hate that, but we, we maybe. We'll see. Nick looks petrified for, <laughs> for, the, for the record and for the listeners at home who can't see Nick, sees Nick's, see Nick's face. I've got my words up. Um, he looks absolutely petrified by the prospect. What we really need, we need Pierre. Pierre is Will and his girlfriend's gorgeous dog. If Pierre makes an appearance, oh. I'm all for it. He That'd be speak. cool. He doesn't do anything other than wine. <laughs> gorgeous as he is. Um, anyway, back to the, the point at hand. <laughs> Universal Yums. Um, so, Moving to New Jersey to the 3,000 square foot warehouse, something I actually weirdly, we discussed this when we connected offline, know a little bit about because, and this is not to plug my dad's business, but I was there right at the beginning of a family business that grew out of a garage in uh, Southwest England into a warehouse. And I had to manage the whole, for some reason in his infinite wisdom, he's like, yeah, we'll go 18 years old, go and plan all the racking in this warehouse space. Let me know how many square foot you need the warehouse to be. Um, Things that you they basically don't teach you on a politics degree at uni or at school, because <laughs> I was a bit younger than that even. I hadn't even gone to uni yet. Um, but yeah, those things are headaches, aren't they? Like figuring out the logistics and 
figuring out like the workflow, the picking stream, not sure if they're the technical terms, but all of that stuff is like going from house to warehouse is, is huge, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we were lucky because when we were in Cincinnati, we um, started working with the fulfillment center pretty early on. Um, just we, we were spending like half of our time packing boxes and realized like that is not how we're going to be able to run this company. So we got to see how a fulfillment center set it up, which did, I guess, give us some indication of like things we would need and how to set up a line. Um, but it was funny, like when we bought our forklift for our warehouse, I mean, it was $13,000. I was like, this costs more than my car. I'm going to go out there and see this <laughs> forklift. And like, I went out to go see it and they were like, why are you here? Like people don't come out and look at you their forklifts before. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. And they were like, you really want to like drive it? I, I just like, I felt like, oh, like this is what I know that you test drive a car. I got to test drive my forklift. And um, yeah, you just like, I don't know. It, there's no like, there should be a class of like how to set up a warehouse. But um, in light of that, you just kind of like apply Wing. what you know elsewhere and apply it to the warehouse. And a lot of that, I guess, is kind of not stealing ideas, but through the people you do business with when you see underneath the hood a little bit. So seeing what fulfillment center setup looks like, you're pretty much like doing it by eye. And yeah. by knowledge of that, right, it's it's a mixture of winging it and like really basic knowledge of certain things. Yeah. Through those experiences, yeah. I just think it's fascinating. I just think it's really fascinating. I love it, Nick. I love the where I love logistics. Maybe I should go back into it. Yeah. Um, we had a pre-chat, Monique, and we were talking about the highs and lows and success stories and nightmares of the journey. And you genuinely, without being prompted, said that working with Jungle was and and sort of understanding the power of. Social and specifically YouTube, I think, was the, the first thing you did where you used a YouTuber um, and saw a huge number of subscriptions off the back of it. And it kind of changed your whole perception of what was possible. Um, I guess and I, I guess for all digital first subscription companies, that is the best way to market your product. But great that you took that risk with Jungle early on and then have continued to deliver that kind of process. Yeah, I mean, the the experience that you're referencing is we had just moved to New Jersey. We had been here for about a year and, um, we were looking for like, actually jungle approached me and said like, Hey, well, this is what we offer. We'll make you this video. And, um, I think I can't remember what we paid. I, I probably shouldn't even say, but I like was no, driving a hard, hard. No, no, I was driving was like too, a hard bargain. Like, little, you know, it was too little. It was, I was, you know, we were bootstrapped and I was like, this is, I mean, it was an, it was a lot of money for Eli probably as I. much, I mean, probably as much as a forklift truck. truck yeah. It, it was something about in the, the region of trucks. Yeah. Yes, it was. So mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I could buy another forklift or I could do this partnership with you and they put together this um 30 second spot for us um and it got like nine million views really quickly uh after it launched and you know it was on their page we used the creative uh for four years i mean it was like our number one creative in our in-house account for years so to me it spoke to like Obviously, Eli and I took an approach of like doing things ourselves as much as we could to learn and make sure that we could like hire the right people and build the right processes internally. But like this was an example of we did not have the know-how and working with them. I mean, even now it's like, I think I told you, if you look at like our Google Trends, that that was like our highest peak so far of getting us to a lot of brand awareness and obviously a lot of conversions too. So we sold out for that holiday season based on that uh, spot. What was, was that creative? One of Four the- years. What, what happened in the video? The creative. So the creative is is I. It's just an unboxing video, isn't it, Monique? I'm trying to think yeah, back to the exact yeah. one it is, and it features actually again because you drove such a hard bargain and. Um, it was only the cost of one forklift truck, not two. It was even using like in-house staff. It was it yeah. was people who worked at Jungle were doing the unboxing. I think no sound, maybe there was sound because they were like discussing the different tastes of each product. They're, no, they, they were weren't. Weird. They weren't they saying weren't anything. Doing- it's just music and it's just captions. Okay. And like it became so big that like the people on the Jungle staff were getting recognized on the street of like, <laughs> oh, you're right. in the Universal Yums video. <laughs> Um, yeah, a couple of my good friends are in that video and are, and are stars and definitely should have asked for 
money for licensing that content for four years because they've been missing out on all of the, they have been missing the, lo- out. the royalties on it. So, um, so I, I know I that know. we're not we're not supposed to talk ROAS and CPAs at all, but being a DTC business, and you obviously knew that subscription model made sense as a business model, which was very smart initially. But how did you know that you needed to understand what kind of tracked cost per acquisition you could deliver, how that would convert to the lifetime value of the customer, how to attribute any organic uplift as well as tracked um, if you didn't have a huge amount of experience in that, um, given that is integral to a DTC brand? Well, we were bootstrapped, so we were looking at the P&L every second, every week, definitely every week, uh, maybe even every day. I mean, we, Eli was doing all the accounting, but I was sitting with him every second he was reviewing it of like, are we going to make money? How much money are we going to make? Like, it was, it was, it was pretty intense, so I think we really understood by the end of 2016, like we had done all of this organic YouTube stuff. It was a big lift on our part. We were, you know, contacting all these YouTubers and trying to get them to make unboxing videos and do like the American try snacks from blah, blah, blah country video format, which was really popular back then. Um, But we knew that there was like a limit to being able to scale that. So we were like really focused on, okay, Facebook is the biggest opportunity for the company. And we didn't know how to do the in-house creative. So it was like, you know, I, I think our CPAs at the beginning were obviously just like super low because it was cheaper to advertise on the platform and we were hitting like the most, um, you know, likely customers. So we, we saw immediately. I mean, we were making money off the first box when we mm-hmm. started advertising on Facebook. And then you- over time, we've been obviously figuring out the more complex equation for that. But um, yeah, from the beginning, it was like, all right, let's let's figure out how this is going to work in our P&L. Um, so you just knew you were making money, but you didn't really understand what the lifetime value was in those early months. But you knew it was worth scaling because it was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was. I mean, it was like simple math. It was like, how many customers did we have this month? How many last month? Okay, the delta is the churn. This. I mean, we yeah. were just we were we were figuring it out along the way. Now now it's more complicated, but yeah, we we just started small and just really knowing all of the numbers of the business yeah i guess within a monthly subscription box model you've only got 30 days to understand how sticky sticky a customer is because it's a really short cancellation window so you get a pretty good sense from the first month yeah you're just super lucky you had great creative to go along with that (laughs) (laughs) we were we were i think that was probably one of the biggest things i'd point to of just like pure luck yeah yeah, again, it's, it's one of those where it's like, I, I think we, we've worked with you for um, four years. I think it was four years ago that, we, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, we create that content. We worked with you on various different campaigns to um, try and emulate the success of the same content through producing more, um, doing social comma stuff like affiliate comma stuff with you. And do you know what? Sometimes you just have to hold your hands up and be like that piece of creative at that time with that audience. You couldn't, there's no science. It, it goes yeah. beyond the point of science. It's just like, there's a lot of unexplained aspects and you can really drill down into the intricacies of the creative. Like, is it Polly's face is the reason? Is it Polly's face at 1.2 seconds? Is it her expression at 2.3? Like, is it the, this particular color of, and there's like, you can data and analyze it till, you know, till the cows come home. I don't know if that's an American, is that American saying too? It is. It It is. is. Okay. It's universal. It's universal yums. Um, (laughs) But I think you get to a point where actually it does become impossible it's like an unexplained phenomenon that that one piece of creative we can get like close to being as good but i don't think we've managed to quite emulate how successful that original piece of content was and um yeah it's 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 a weird one it's definitely a weird one um but it's awesome to see that um university arms is doing different things now i know you've just launched like following the success of the d2c box you've now launched like a, a marketplace where you can purchase all of the snacks. You don't have to wait for them to come round on rotation. Um, Yeah. We started it last year. We kind of, I mean, even when Eli and I started the business, we knew that this would be like the, it's brother or sister always. Like we would have the box and then they would have this little companion of the shop. And we feel there's a lot of opportunity there, uh, especially for, 
you know, what we've been able to do in the last six years is work with all of these suppliers. We've, I, Eli and I have tried every single product. I mean, I've probably tried 10,000 snacks and candies from around the world. So I have a pretty good awareness of what the best are. And that's what we're, that's what we're filling the shop with. And we're really excited because we found all of these unique products that right now they only come up, you know, when they come up in the box. And um, we feel there's a lot of opportunity there to to sell to people who might not want the box concept, who um, might want to get products again and again. So we're really we're really looking to make it a larger piece of our business in the next um, year. Super exciting. What's your favorite out of interest, seeing as you've tried pretty much all of them? I know my personal favorite because I we actually had Nick and I, um, if you didn't know, work, worked in the same office before COVID and everything, and now we're at our respective houses working. But um, we got the Halloween box Oh, nice. last, last year and there was one incredible candy in it which was this purple sour candy from Colombia that just like I couldn't get enough of I was eating like four or five a day um <laughs> what's your favorite if um, you could I mean they're I, obviously all great okay I think uh can I say two yeah no all right no, so no, 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 no you can't you can't <laughs> really choose one all right so we're doing this again in our holiday box this year but it's this popcorn from Taiwan and it's flavored to be salted egg yolk and it's like addicting like you just it's like you can't stop eating it it's like kind of has a cheese aftertaste it's really unique really good and then we just discovered this chocolate bar from italy which is going to go in an upcoming box and it's made with like hazelnut chocolate paste is like the base and then there's whole hazelnuts inside and I, i mean like i'm sampling a lot of products every day so i try not to like eat a large portion of it, but I ate the whole bar. I, and I, I, I ate all the samples that were left in the office. Like I just could not get enough of this thing. Um, I, I think it's going to be a huge winner. I wish it, I, I mean, maybe we'll get it into every gas station in America because Americans deserve it. It's so good. It's interesting what you said about the Taiwan popcorn. I went to the cinema in Thailand many years ago and I said, I'll have a mixture of all the flavors. And I got about a third of the way through and there was the most disgusting flavor of all time. And then I left the cinema and they have sweet, savory and cottage cheese flavor. Just wow. as the three flavors. Wow. Yeah. Love that. Must be a but thing. Sweet and, sweet and savory is the way you want to do it. You want to have um, pudding and then the main course or mix right. it up and you go main course then pudding. I like to mix it up, but cottage cheese sounds no. repugnant. Like, not, <laughs> yeah, that sounds not bad. for me. How do you go about... So the thing I think is wild is how did you find? Sorry, I can hear up. We're in New York. We're in New York. We're in New York. Yeah. Just in case you didn't believe me, I'm here. Um, <laughs> how did you go about finding the supplier in Taiwan to get this popcorn? How um, like is it like cold calling? Is it just like internet research? Do you go to like trade shows and events to go and? It's a mix. It's a mix of trade shows. It's a mix of cold calling, a mix of research. Did you go to Taiwan? Did you you travel much as a result of it? Or do you kind of do everything from the comfort of New Jersey after being shocked by China? (laughs) I would love to travel everywhere to these places. Um, Eli and I always wanted to do that. The reality of running the business, like is that we couldn't. I mean, we we would go to trade shows where you can meet a lot of suppliers all at once and be mm-hmm. away from the office for 3 days and that was that was the reality of how, you know, we were doing just so much in the business. It was not possible to do that and we were also, you know, bootstrapping so we didn't ha- have the money at the beginning to really fly everywhere and still run the business. Um so yeah, I mean, for us it was I haven't been to a lot of the countries that we've sourced from, but it's on my list. Like, and I, what's great is like, now we know all these people in the country. So they're like, yeah, come stay at our hotels. Come stay at, you know, like all the, we have all these invitations. So hopefully that will, that will come up at some point. When you, when you potentially, I don't know, we don't know if this is on the cards and you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but when you sell eventually the business, I I know entrepreneurs always have like some aspiration of like a potential valuation, which they just can't, couldn't refuse selling and exiting at mm-hmm. um i think you should just go on a huge trip at that point and travel the world and go to all these great places because you've lived it and you've worked hard enough to do it <laughs> yeah i agree and uh, maybe we'll take some employees along with us i gotta string them along yeah, yeah I mean, that, that could get political 
that could so, get political. Yeah, oh, I'm going to Taiwan, and the other one's like, oh, I've only managed to go to Canada. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the, I guess, before we finish, what is the plan going forward, Monique? You've obviously built this hugely successful business. I guess, did you always expect to build a business this successful, or are you the kind of entrepreneur who wants to build the next Mondelez and you won't be happy until you've done it? Um, and what is the plan uh, beyond this kind of second iteration we've discussed? I mean, Universal Yums has exceeded my expectations of it. Uh, my only goal with it was to be able to leave my job at Procter & Gamble. And then, you certainly succeeded um, on that. Yeah, when, once that happened, I think Eli and I recognized like we were in this position that we couldn't pass up of like, we could potentially make enough money that we'd never have to work again. And we could do it within a condensed time frame that would give us freedom to choose whatever we wanted to do next in our life. And um, I think that's where we're at today. I mean, we are, we are really, we're really focused on getting the business um, in a place where we're, we're not we're needed on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's becoming increasingly important because we're planning to start a family. So when I look at like what's next, it's I, I, I'm ready for that next phase of my life for um, the business to take a little bit uh, less uh, priority and for my family to take a larger one. So I have I think I, I see like maybe I could go start the next next Mondelez. But I think when you reach a certain level, you have to decide like really what you want your life to be about. And that's not what I want my life to be about. So. I've become really clear on that already. And I know like what's going to be next for me is, is probably not starting another business. Like I, I feel really lucky to reach the level of success I've had. Um, but that was, then, then it's time to like close the chapter and do something else. I've always like really enjoyed the, doing the creative side of the business. So um, I'm going to focus more on that in, in the next stage of my career. Are you going to dip back into the sheet of uh, 10 businesses you could launch in a day yeah you know what i might (laughs) are there any hidden gems in that don't share them because we're listened by enough people and smart people that could steal them but i'd dip back into that sheet sounds like a good place to start i i I might and yeah but who knows i think my my objective this time around if i were to start anything else would be different than just making money i think um that was like a huge impetus in in this um phase of my life but i think i would look for something different you know the the enjoyment i got out of it the value it provided back to the world the growth that people would feel when they're a part of it those are all things that i i think sometimes i missed along the way as i was really focused on just the money aspect of it i hear you um I think we're about up to time. I've just seen the recording hit the exact hour mark. Um, and I think that's a really nice note to wrap up on. So I think Monique, so. Thanks so much for your time. It's been lovely to chat. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on. And thanks everyone at home. We shall see you next time. I'm serious. Move to a new city. We're moving to New York. Okay, I should probably buy a place in the city first. Are you here for business or pleasure? Hopefully both.